Support for this episode comes from SAS. SAS is going all in on AI to help the world get more done with data. See for yourself in Las Vegas, April 16th to 19th at SAS Innovate, the data and AI experience for everyone and every role from top executives to data scientists, engineers, analysts, and more. I'll be there leading a panel discussion about the importance of responsible AI. It's just one of the many sessions that will highlight the massive potential of AI. Visit innovate.sas.com and use the code CARA to save $100 on registration. I'll see you there. Hi, everyone, from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is On with Kara Swisher, and I'm Kara Swisher. Today, my guest is PBS senior correspondent and former anchor and managing editor of the PBS NewsHour, of course, Judy Woodruff. There are few people who have as long and comprehensive a perspective on American life and politics as her. She's been a highly regarded and respected political reporter for over 50 years. She's covered seven different administrations in Washington, starting with former President Jimmy Carter. Remember him? I do. And she led PBS's flagship news program for over a decade before stepping down at the end of 2022. For the past year, Woodruff has been traveling all over the country for a new project, America at a Crossroads, talking to everyone from everyday Americans to civic leaders to President Biden to better understand how we've become so divided and what can be done about it, if anything at all. I want to talk to her about that and about the role media has to play in that polarization and what Republican calls to cut government funding for public broadcasting could mean for our democracy. Our weekly Ask an Expert question comes from historian John Meacham. Hi, it's John Meacham with a question for the great Judy Woodruff. Judy, you came to Washington more than 50 years ago uh, with President-elect Carter. I'm wondering, when you think about Carter's Washington and now Biden's Washington, what's changed the most and why? Do you think there are forces that have been able to corrupt and coarsen our politics beyond redemption? Or do you think there is the possibility of creating a climate in which we can exchange ideas and proposals as opposed to insults? Thanks. Yes, good question, John. This nation turns its lonely and really angry eyes to you, Judy. We'll be back after the break with Judy Woodruff. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big ROAS man. Then he just kept saying things like, the bigger the ROAS, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means calculating a return on ad spend. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the ROAS man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com media to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com media. Terms and conditions apply. 
LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Support for On with Kara Swisher comes from NerdWallet. You don't have to be a genius to start making better financial decisions today. It's not that sexy, but piling up lots of little monetary victories today can yield some pretty significant rewards down the line. The tricky part is knowing where to start. NerdWallet can help. Their financial experts have helped countless people find new ways to maximize every dollar they earn. Now the team is helping folks get more from every dollar they spend. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credits side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering up to 10 times the points on every dollar you charge. Their expert team of nerds did the work reviewing top credit cards so you can trust that you have the smartest one for future you. If I had better rewards right now, I would probably travel to Hawaii and be sitting on a beach and not talking into this microphone right now. I would be enjoying a Mai Tai, possibly swimming, doubtful I would be surfing, but I would spend them all there. Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. It is Hi, Judy, and welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, I'm obviously a huge fan for many years, and my sister-in-law is an enormous Judy Woodruff fan. Oh, She's losing her mind. Thank you, thank you, and thank you to your sister-in-law. So anyway, we have a lot to talk about. I want to start first with the 2024 coverage. We're in the middle of another election. Of course, your show is about partisanship, and we're right in the middle of a particularly partisan election that very few people want to have right now. Uh, I'm just curious, were you surprised by Ron DeSantis' decision to drop out of the race before New Hampshire? And and what do you think of Nikki Haley's chances going up against former President Donald Trump at this moment? I guess I was surprised about Ron DeSantis. Uh, I, I didn't expect him to drop out as quickly as he did. But I will also tell you, Kara, uh, that I'm not following the campaigns. I'm not talking oh, wow. to the campaigns every day as some mm-hmm. of the reporters, so many of those reporters are, including my colleagues at the News Hour. They so are. I bet Lisa Desjardins, <laughs> my colleague, was not as surprised as I was. I was just, I just thought maybe he'd hang in there, at least through New Hampshire. And what about Nikki Haley? Yeah, oh, and you're asking, what do I think her chances are? Well, I mean, like the conventional wisdom is you look at the polls, mm-hmm. and it looks tough for her. Um, but I will also say that Americans are known to surprise people, and I don't know that that's going to happen in South Carolina, but uh, the voters haven't voted until the day they go to the polls, uh, and mm-hmm. so we'll see. I mean, it clearly doesn't look good for her right now. And Trump himself, he's at the center of your uh, America at a crossroads. He's an incumbent in a weird way, um, but how do you look at his candidacy given after January 6th, everyone thought he was finished? I think um, I think he is sui generis. We've never seen anything like it in my lifetime. I've been covering American politics now mm-hmm. for 53, over 50 years, 53, I don't know, I've lost count. Yeah. But I've never seen the country as both uh, divided as it is right now, and we can talk about that in a minute, but also kind of with, a, with so many Americans in thrall to one political figure. I mean, I remember the appeal to a degree of George Wallace in the South, I've read about other politicians over time and their following, but in my lifetime, I haven't seen anything like Donald Trump. And do you feel like he'll be held accountable given that popularity? I mean, we've had we've had um, people that are popular, often cultural figures, Huey Long, right. I guess Joe McCarthy for a short period of time. 
Um, although I don't know if people are enthralled with him, but they certainly were occupied by him. Yeah. I, I mean, if you're asking, do I think this is enduring? Um, well, it's already lasted for eight going on nine years. And and it's, the texture of it has changed. What he was in the beginning is sort of a fascinating figure out of another, out of a non-political world who who then entered the political world and sort of took it by storm, sort of crept up on everybody. Today, it's very different. We've seen uh, the record. We know what Donald Trump says. Um, and so it's it's different right now. It's evolving before our eyes. And I have to say, I learn something every time I go out and, you know, and talk to voters and hear mm-hmm. their reaction, or I read other what other reporters, or see what other reporters are hearing from voters. Um, I mean, just last night, I read... Uh, a conversation or part of a conversation that a reporter on Politico had with a man, you may probably saw the same thing, who Mm -hmm. was against Trump, was interested in Haley in New Hampshire and completely flipped and decided within a matter of a few months that Trump is the strong voice that we need. Um, And this kind of thing deeply interests me. What is it that causes people to change their thinking in a short such a short period of time. And, and what role do you think Biden plays right now? I'm setting this up for your for America, the crossroads. When you went into this, what was, from your perspective, his role? Well, he was, it's interesting, he was the first interview we had for Crossroads. I really wanted to talk to him to begin to set the table, if you will. So I talked to him in Wisconsin back in February of 2023. And what he said about division, which was, you know, the, the thesis of this project is is uh, that he, he's never seen the country as bitter, as angry, and he wishes that we're, there were some way to get around it. But, but your question is, what is his role with regard, with regard to Trump? I see President Biden, for the most part, standing aside and letting the Republican story play itself out. Yes, he's made some speeches. He made that speech not so long ago. Um, uh, where he he talked about the the critical role of democracy. Don't forget, you know, our role as voters and uh, and so forth. But um, he, it's not something he's talking about every day. Now that's going to change uh, clearly as we get closer to the fall. Um, but right now, I don't see him in the fray. So let's talk about America at a crossroads. It's quite a, it is, it's more than a crossroads. I'm not even sure there's a metaphor uh, from where we are. We're sort of deep in something, something. We had a hard Um, time picking a name. (laughs) What was the other names? What were the other names? Oh my gosh. We had a, I had a list of about 30 things and I've deliberately not, I've tore up the list. (laughs) Okay. But uh, our executive producer, Sarah Just, who's, uh, who's great at thinking up labels and names for things like this, you know, ultimately said, you know, I think this is the closest to what you're doing. And I said, you're right. I just hate to make a decision here. Right. What what was another? You have to tell me I another. I thought about everything from divided America, where is America, understanding America. I wanted to leave it as open-ended as possible. But I think yeah. crossroads is, is, uh, is one way of getting at it. Yeah, I'd call it let's go back to bed. Um, <laughs> So um, let's back up. This, tell us about the project, the impetus behind it. Uh, why why did you decide to do this? Obviously, this has been a topic that's been well covered. Um, even mm-hmm. people like uh, New York Times pitch bought jokes of it. You know, we went to a diner, you know, in this town mm-hmm. and talked to three people about finance. Like, it's gotten into mockery even. Like, it has. This whole idea. So talk about why you decided and the impetus for you. 
Well, for me, it was, mm-hmm. I knew I was going to step down from anchoring at the end of 2022. And I also knew that I didn't want to stop working. I wanted to continue reporting in some form for the news hour. They wanted me to do that. And I went to them with the idea of, of spending two years, last year and this year, leading up to this election, trying to understand what it is that has caused Americans not to be able to sit down over Thanksgiving dinner together. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you're right. We've been asking this question for a long time, but I still don't feel we, we've gotten to the bottom of it. I, don't, I certainly don't. I mean, I've, I've now spent 12 months on this with my team, and you know, I'm very proud of the reporting we've done. We've learned a lot, but I still think there's more to learn here. There's something going on in the American heart, in the American psyche, that we don't fully understand. We have chunks of Americans who despise other Americans um, because of what they believe politically, because of their label. And, you know, we've talked to the experts. I don't know if you watched the segment we did early on. We talked to Pew, and they said, well, this goes back to the 90s. And then they talked about how just since 2016, there's been like a tripling or or a doubling of Republicans who think Democrats, all that, you know. Yeah, Um, it's a lot of feels is what's happening right now rather than— Policy. You're not arguing about policy. You're arguing about feelings and emotions. About how you feel. But why is it that our that our political identity has become so emotional for us? Has become part of our psyche. What what happened? I mean, it used to be, you know, whatever pe- people knew each other by, you know, where'd you grow up? You know, tell me about mm-hmm. your family. What you know, what kind of sports do you like? But now it's if you're an R or a D, I already know whether I you know like you or not. Right. Um, right. It's just, it's taken over who we are. And when we talked to um, those voters in in Iowa back in the summer. Republicans. Mm-hmm. And when, for example, we asked, among other things, what would you think if your son or daughter married a Democrat? And mm-hmm. one woman made a, sort of a funny comment. It started out funny. She said, well, she said, my daughter did. It didn't go well. You know, we're estranged. Um, people started laughing, but then, you know, we're sobered up when she said that. But the rest of the group, several of them said, my children are liberals, they're Democrats. And and we managed, They love. we love each other, even though we disagree. They know they're not going to change my mind. But the question that, that struck me, uh, that has stayed with me ever since, was the question that, that we asked Sarah to, to, to pose to them. And that is, do you think it's possible to be liberal, to be a Democrat? And yeah. to be a Christian, to be a person of deep faith, and to a person, this group said no. Right. That because of uh, abortion, because what it represents to them, and they mentioned gender. They said, we don't see how someone who God or Jesus made uh, one gender can change their gender. That was a, a deeply um, surprising answer to me. Yeah. I didn't expect it. And when we spoke with Democrats not so long after in Pennsylvania. We went to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Um, of course, they were they were shaking their heads and saying that's ridiculous. Of course, um, but this is this is where we are for many Americans. This is emblematic of the kind of division. What struck me was the immoral accusations, which were in the. Um in the Pew uh, research, right. uh, it's a very heavy thing to think about. It's a heavy word, immoral. Yeah. Um, I, I just interviewed Heather Cox Richardson, and when we spoke, she was troubled by that, but also held out hope. But the word immoral is very hopeless, I think. 
It is. And, and I think of, of the two findings that the Pew folks shared with us, I mean, that, that was the, had to be the most disturbing. That, that was, we said, seven, eight years ago, 40%, 35% of Republicans or Democrats were immoral. It's now 72%. I think mm-hmm. Democrats are mainly immoral. Um, I mean, that's a judgment about someone else. I think it does have to do with some of these cultural issues that if we used to define party by, okay, what size of government should we have? How big should the deficit be allowed to grow? How much do you want government to do for you? Today, it's, there is more and more of what we mentioned a minute ago. It's issues like abortion. It's issues that have to do with gender, which seems to have just seeped into the debate or the discussion over education and taken it over so that local school boards, which is something else we covered, are now, as you know, having these big fights. Yeah, although they seem to be coming down a little bit in that regard, I've noticed. Um, But it's not astonishing. I just spent the last two days with my mother, who has become, I would say, less informed and more rabid. And I would say it's due to the incessant watching of Fox News. That's what's gotten to her. Um, Nikki Haley is too woke for her, which is just like, okay. Um, It's impossible to have a cogent conversation. And there's not any solution that would work. I keep thinking deprogramming. That's the only thing I can think of, me and my... uh, me and my brother particularly. So the hopelessness of your panel struck home. Um, were you surprised by that? Because you seemed surprised by sort of th- that there was no common ground. I was. I mean, we didn't, we didn't, we shared there was more to the panel than that. And on other mm-hmm. questions, I think I mentioned, you know, what would you think if your, if your son or daughter married a Democrat? There was more openness to that. I, we had one man say, both of my daughters think I'm you know, far out to the right. They completely disagree with me. I think he said something like they think I'm crazy. Um, But he said, I still love them and they love me. um, And we can still talk about these things. The problem is in many families, people can't talk about it. I mean, we've had people write in, we've done call outs, trying to find people to talk with. And some people have written us and said, I can't even talk to my spouse, my my father, my mother, my brother, my sister-in-law. Um, and it's painful. I mean, people describe it in a in a painful way. That it is that it's um, it's hurting friendships, neighbors, building walls in the neighborhood. People move, actually moving. I don't. I don't want to pretend that's you know that's a massive phenomenon. But in some cases, people we know are moving to areas where they think they're going to find more people who think the same way they do. So are we now going to? you know, segregate ourselves into communities. Yeah, of, and it's hard because it's it's brought up a lot. The one thing my mom does is bring it up a lot. Like, I love Trump. Just say it on the top of her head. And I literally am like, Let's, can we talk about anything else? Um, Barbie. Wait, no, we can't talk about that either. Like, because that's like a polarized <laughs> thing uh, about the Oscars. Um, but we're in the middle of this, another extremely polarized election cycle. You spoke, uh, one of your guests, a political historian at Vanderbilt University, Nicole Hemmer, about the role politics plays. Let's listen to the clip. We talk about polarization as though it just describes the political landscape that we're in. But polarization is actually a a tool Mm -hmm. of politics, right? It's it's something that political leaders can use to both tear down their opponents and to drive their base closer to them. It's something that we saw in the politics of the 1990s. Newt Gingrich, a Speaker of the House, saw polarization as a powerful weapon. He, He circulated rhetoric that talked about Democrats as 
disgusting and evil as a way of, of having voters recoil against this group, seeing them as enemies rather than opponents. So as someone who's been a political reporter for as long as you have, where do you see the starting point? Because this was, I, recall, I remember this, it was shocking when he was doing this. Um, not that there haven't been mud flung over the many years. Carter was the subject of quite a lot of it. Um, but talk about what, using it as a tool, because that's that's part of it. As part of it is propaganda, which is very classic. These are classic tools of propaganda. No, I, I actually, um, even, even before, you know, Nicole Hemmer, who, by the way, is brilliant and we're so lucky to be able to speak with her for our for the special that we did back in December. Um, even before you know, I, I spoke with her and I knew about her writing. It seemed to me, as somebody who covered Washington back during, I mean, again, going back to the late seventies, but Gingrich was the one who, with his contract for America, you know, on the part of the Republican Party, it was all about tearing down point by point by point what it was that. President Clinton was trying to do. It was basically dismantling it and saying, this is not only wrong, this is it's un-American, and, and using uh, language like that to just reject every one of the, of the, the uh, points in the Democratic plank, if you will. And so, I mean, I had thought of Gingrich as being at the beginning, at least in my, in my understanding of American politics. But the other piece of this is that while we've been watching the politicians, the media has been changing. The way people get information, the way politicians are able to spread information, the way they are able to put money into advertising, what they're free to say now on television, radio, and online. You know, we weren't in the 90s. We weren't where we are right now. But, but it's clear that politicians, I think in both parties, but I think first I give credit to the Republicans for thinking about how to push their points of view um, in the media. And, and now that we've seen the media transformed in that it, we're swimming in it, it's everywhere, mm -hmm. it's all around us, and there's so many ways to not just spread information, but to, but to manipulate information. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I just say one other thing, Kara, the thing that I focused on a lot, and I don't know how we cover it, is the fact that, as you just said, your mother and many, many Americans listen to one set of sources of news and information. Other Americans listen to entirely different sources of information. So how do we come together when what we know and what we believe mm -hmm. are two completely different things, and we right. each believe we are right? Right. How do we, how do we come together? We'll be back in a minute. Support for this show comes from Virgin Atlantic. Travel can be stressful. I don't think that's a controversial take. Sure, we all love taking a vacation and that moment we finally get a chance to relax, but we're always so focused on the destination that the journey just feels like a means to an end. Well, what if it wasn't? What if the time you spent getting there was just as enjoyable as the vacation itself? That's what Virgin Atlantic believes. That's why they offer loads of special extra touches that make your trip one to remember for all the best reasons. Picture this, you've made it to the airport, checked in your bags, and finally have a moment to settle in before takeoff. If you're flying upper class, you could be putting your feet up in a Virgin Atlantic clubhouse at London Heathrow with food made fresh to order and champagne delivered straight to your table with a tap of a QR code. I mean, it's rude not to, right? 
Once you're in the air, the experience continues with deliciously different dining, seriously comfy seats, and the best crew in the sky by miles. Check out virginatlantic.com for your next trip and see the world differently. Support for this show comes from Ramp. Are you overwhelmed with managing your business expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? Is your finance software just not cutting it? Or maybe you're just looking to cut all that wasteful spending. Ramp could be a total game changer for you and your business. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spending. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Plus, Ramp is easy to use. You can get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. Not only that, but Ramp can save you money. They estimated that businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. And now you can get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash Kara, ramp.com slash Kara, R-A-M-P dot com slash Kara. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank, members FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. So I want to talk about your career and media. You started at NBC in the 70s, covering the Carter administration, then moved to PBS in the 80s, and in the 90s, you were at CNN. 15 years ago, you returned to PBS. The Times called you a, quote, rare thing, a longtime Washington insider, untouched by controversy. Um, you still have got some years to go, Judy, so we'll see. In the farewell to the news hour in December of 2022, you talked a bit about your values as a lead anchor. Let's play this clip. Through it all, I've tried to stay true to what the program's founders, Robin McNeil and Jim Lehrer, believe so fiercely that we're here to report, to tell you as accurately and fairly as we can what's going on in the world, and to let you make up your minds about what to think, and to have the courage, as my beloved co-anchor Gwen Eiffel did, to ask the tough questions, to hold people in power accountable. And I would add, to care enough about each one of you, to respect you and your beliefs, what your lives are like. So you said care enough to respect you and your beliefs. I want to talk to you about that. Is that what reporting accurately and fairly means to you? It's something that's being debated in newsrooms right now. Well, I, it, it's, to me, it's such, a good, it's such an important question right now because you're right. I think there's a perception that, that uh, among some who cover our political stories right now that many Americans are misguided, that they don't have the correct information, that they're basing mm-hmm. their views off of false, um, whatever they've been told that's false. Um, and that makes what we do much harder. I still believe that. we It's our job to report what we know that's factual and to correct information that isn't accurate. But I also think we have to respect people, that it's not our job to diminish, uh, denigrate, uh, cut off, um, make fun of people who are have different views. And it's one of the biggest challenges right now of journalism, and I don't have a, a good answer for it. I, I don't know how I'd be doing, Kara, right now if I were out there as a as a mm-hmm. day-to-day reporter trying to cover it, because... Yeah. Because... People are saying things, uh, they're telling reporters things that they've heard, that they believe that are wrong. You know, I had a, I tell a story with my mom and I did an interview with Hillary Clinton and my mom called me 
and started going on about how terrible Hillary Clinton was, and she said this and this and this, and I realized it was my interview that had been regurgitated on whatever she was watching, and it was incorrect, everything about it. And I said, Mom, that was my interview. She didn't say that. And she's like, oh, she did. And I'm like, no, no, she didn't. It was my interview. She believed what she had heard rather than from me who did the interview. And I made her go listen to it. And she said, she came back. She's like, okay, she didn't say it. And then she immediately said, but you know her emails. And I literally was like, there, it was, it was, it was a moment. It was one of those moments. I was like, it's your daughter did the interview. It was fascinating. Um, it, it was almost impossible. There was no way out. I felt like I was in, in a Jean Paul Sartre farce <laughs> of some sort. Um, but one of the things you did, and you just smiled when you heard her name in the clip. I also knew Gwen, who was yeah. wonderful. Um, how do you think she would be meeting this moment? Um, she was almost uh, too wise for these wise ass times, is my feeling. <laughs> but I'm sure she would have an insight that I don't have, Kara. I mean, Gwen was, as you know, because you knew her, she was brilliant. She cared so much about about what we do as journalists. Um, I'm sure she would have, she would she would be seeing something that, that I'm not seeing, that a lot of us are not seeing. But I think she would be facing it head on. She'd be saying, we've got to cover this story. We've got to do the best we can. We've got to call out falsehoods when we hear them. I know she would, um, because that's, that's who she was. Um, she did not, as you know, Gwen, <laughs> didn't suffer fools. She... No. You know, believed in um, speaking truth to power. That's an overused term, but that's who she was. Um, and you know, we could use we could use some Gwen wisdom right now. Well, speaking of boys, last fall I spoke with CNN's Christiane Amanpour about her approach, and she, of course, has gotten well known for saying, "Be truthful, not neutral." Um, and I should add a disclaimer: I'm a CNN contributor. Uh, but thoughts on that? Truthful, not neutral. Can you be neutral anymore? Is there neutral, or do you think it never existed? Yeah, I'm not, I don't know what neutral is. My view is that, okay, I'm not taking sides. I'm not giving, sending money to the Republicans or the Democrats. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hearing all sides, not just both sides, but all sides. And as for truthful, I mean, who has ground truth? I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer as, again, as a reporter, a humbled reporter over all these years. There are a whole lot of things that I thought were accurate in the moment that I learned a few weeks or a few months or a few years later uh, were wrong, were absolutely wrong. And so I'm I'm careful about what I believe, you know, what I call truth. I have enormous respect for Christiane and her work. Oh my gosh, I mean, she's has done iconic work in our business. Um, but I think my approach is to just keep on digging, keep on reporting, keep on asking questions, humbled in the knowledge that, yes, we may get to the truth one day, but we may not get there in our lifetime. And it's our job as reporters to just keep keep pushing, keep asking, keep looking, keep digging, keep reading, and poking around in those places that other people are not poking. I think she was making the point that you can make conclusions after doing that reporting, right? You can make, um, because, you know, one of the ideas is critics call it both-sidism, right? And that gives power to liars, very much so. Um, In the program, you interviewed a man, his name was Steve Rader, a rancher from Texas, who talked about how he disagreed with the editor of his local newspaper on her views on the Vietnam War at the time, or her family's views, uh, but later in life came to agree with her and 
said she was right. What a wonderful interview that was. But Thank you. Um, yes. Is it difficult to have the both sidesism because it's been so um, weaponized in a lot of ways? I think it is. I think reporters today, if there was ever a time, and there clearly was, when reporters could just fall back and say, oh, we talked to somebody on that side, and now we're, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we also talked to somebody on that side. I think we all now know that's not good enough. I mean, it's not good enough just to hear both sides. You need to listen for the nuance. If if somebody is saying something that is not borne out, in fact, you have to call them out on it. The difficulty, Kara, is when it's a string of things that people are saying. I mean, I remember covering political conventions in the past where I would have on a member of Congress or somebody who would just come with talking points and they would, mm-hmm. in a blizzard of points, would say this, 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 and this. And I'd look at my you know, whatever the clock on the wall or surreptitiously, you know, how much time do I have left in order to challenge each one of those points. And for television journalism, which, you know, you know, as somebody who's worked in the broadcast medium, you know, the clock is is our enemy. We have to, we have to get it done in a certain number of minutes. Sure. Um, but bottom line is we can no longer just say, well, I talked to the left and I talked to the right and we've covered it. Right. We have to do but, more but than that. Same- we have to keep asking um the, the problem is what's popular is to have a point of view, to get viewers to tune in. Um, and coming back to the idea of polarization, which you're covering, uh, being used as a political weapon, the same tactics happen in media. And I, I'm, of course, thinking about Fox News because I just mentioned it. But people who stand opposite of me on some issues can say the same about CNN. They certainly say it about MSNBC. And some say it about PBS, which has gotten sucked into the cultural wars. Um, you, you touch on the role of the media when it comes to polarization. Uh, you know, you touch on not just the media, but then there's online media um, all co- where most people are getting their news right now. Um, how do you think about the role of media when it comes to the polarization? Because what's popular is to have a point of view. I think the media plays an enormous role in our polarization, not just social media, not just Twitter and and Instagram and Facebook and all the, you know, the rest of it, uh, YouTube, but, but also media period, because we now know, and it's what you and I were speaking about a minute ago, people can go to their respective corners, they can listen to the media that, that, that just repeats and drills in hour after hour, minute after minute, a particular point of view. Yes, there's still mainstream, quote, mainstream media, straight media that's out there, um, but people can ignore that. They can live in their own cocoon. How did we get to this place? <laughs> you know, that's not where media used to be. And it's not that media is all, hasn't, hasn't always taken sides. I mean, we know about yellow journalism in the beginning of the 20th century. There were newspapers on both sides. And, and in, you know, today around the world, there are newspapers taking sides. So that none of that is new. But what is different today, I think, is that the media can spread whatever media it is, whether it's social or mm-hmm. television, radio, whatever, can in some form or another take a story that is completely wrong, false, and spread it and and just hammer it away. And and in other words, in other words, giving people the ammunition they need to believe what they believe and then to believe the other side is wrong, the other side is immoral, dishonest, and all the rest. I mean, if you're fed that steady diet, then, you know, 
There's also been a consolidation in mainstream. This week, we've seen a plethora of layoffs at national publications like the LA Times and billionaires who came in to rescue, a lot of them tech billionaires, um, getting cold feet after losses. Um, is there a business model anymore that is not huge or quite small, as Ezra Klein posited, which I would agree with? He said, the middle is collapsing in journalism. You can thrive at very small or very big, and it's extremely hard to survive between those two poles. That's a disaster for journalism and for readers. And I will note that meta shares are at an all-time high, and most people get their news from Meta at this point, um, for Facebook or or Instagram or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and now TikTok, obviously. So the question is about the future of, of journalism. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. deeply worried, <laughs> like, like so many people are right now. I don't know where we are headed. I'm not smart enough to know, um, you know, what model, what business model is going to work, because it's clear that right now we haven't figured that out. The reporting that I did, Kara, that you referenced about local mm-hmm. Journalism yeah. and the trouble it's hit hard, having, very hard, very hard. Yeah, um, just decimated um, across the country is deeply worrying for all of us because if if a community doesn't have information, then what do they do? They then turn to they don't have local information. They then turn to cable news or some other national source, which mm-hmm. is all very much focused on the conflict. Um, and it's entertaining. It keeps it fills the hours, but is it? Is it information that then makes us better citizens, that helps us understand what we face as Americans in an, in a, in an accurate way? Um, yeah, these are news deserts. Uh, exactly. and, and one of the things that was, I've forgotten about, a lot of these news uh, organizations also talk about happy things or what's ha- just what's happening. This The fire happened. This is how this particular ranch is coping. Yeah, the rancher you mentioned in, um, in Canadian Texas who— had tears in his eyes speaking about what had happened to the to the Canadian record did speak about those things he said he said the this was the paper that recorded um he said not just the fire that that did terrible damage to his to his uh, livestock and to his ranch um but he said this is the place where I could see my grandchildren high school football team score reported mm-hmm. in the press i read about people's births and deaths and weddings and it's it's the chronicle of our lives, and it's gone. And what is that taking away from us as Americans? I mean, we the American experiment um, is has been different. I don't know many other parts of the world that have the kind of journalism infrastructure we've had in this country. And I wonder about our identity as Americans if we don't have the local papers to tell those stories. Um, and then, of course, national media picks up on them. So I'm worried yeah. at every level. I'm very worried about the local level. And what I will say is that this terrific work done by these groups like the American Journalism Project, Press Forward, which was put together by MacArthur, Knight, and other foundations to try mm-hmm. to save newsrooms. But trust in the media is at historic lows. Now, it's never been high, let's be clear. I, a lot of people are like, I can't believe they don't believe us. I'm like, they didn't really back in the colonial days either. Um, and news avoidance is high because it's upsetting. Um, do you think these things are connected? And what can news organizations do to combat this? Because if you're not there for the entertainment aspect, the uh, are you not entertained, and they don't want news, like actual facts, what's the solution from your, and you don't have to give the perfect solution, Judy, I, I think it's up to us as journalists to find ways to tell stories that will keep will hold people's interest. I think we need to be doing the deep dives, going into the budget books and figuring out, you know, where is our social security 
money spent? How is it allocated? You know, go into the go into deep into the budgets in these federal agencies, state agencies, local agencies, and so forth. But to also to present it in an interesting way, because you're right, people lead busy lives. They have many, many choices of where to turn for news. So we've got to find more interesting ways to present it. But I, I want to also say it's also the response. This is probably a terribly unpopular thing. I'm sure it is uh, to say, but it is the responsibility of Americans as citizens. We have responsibility too to understand what's going on around us, to follow. Um, I don't know, news about spending, uh, news about Mm -hmm. um, what's happening to our school system and so forth, and to read as much as we, to understand as much as we can. I know people's lives are busy. I get it. And it's not just that, but it's burnout. People are tired of bad news and and you get exhausted by the the circus, right? And so why not turn on TikTok and watch people dance, right? That, that makes perfect sense and, to me. And by the way, the News Hour has a TikTok option. You can there is a TikTok version, not of the entire newscast, yeah. but of many of the stories that we do. We're trying to reach people where they are and where they get their news because sure. we know that's that's changing. Um, but Kara, I mean, that's a shorter version, and it, w- what we hope that will lead to is that people will listen to that, watch that, and then they'll be drawn in. They'll be curious, and they'll want to hear. Um, maybe a little bit more about that story. And my hope is that that's what happens with with these shorter bites of news, that people will get the story, they'll care about it, and then they'll want to read or hear or see a little bit more. Yeah, I think one of the things that's uh, interesting, I I was just interviewed by Frontline. I've told this story before. Um, They were doing a thing on Twitter. I thought they did a great job. And um, my son called me in the middle of it. My oldest son, he's 21. He said, what are you doing? I said, I, I can't talk to you right now. I'm doing this Frontline thing. He goes, oh, I love Frontline. And I was like, what? Like, you know, I was like, oh, really? And he knew every single Frontline show. Wow. And I said, and I turned it on because I thought, oh, my God, these people, I've got a, 20, I've got a live 21-year-old on the line here. Um, and I said, I, on the phone, I said, hey, Louie, I didn't know you watched PBS. And he said, I don't watch PBS. I watch YouTube. He was aware of PBS, right? Of course, he knows it comes from PBS, but he it was really interesting because I remember the resistance at the time of PBS people when I was talking to them many years ago to getting out there on these right. platforms, which was interesting. I mean, how do you think they're impacting your demographics? Oh, we absolutely, uh, it's become critical for us. Everything we do is now available on YouTube. The shows are available. Segments are yeah. available. Resist. It was resisted, I can tell you. Yeah. It was resisted yeah. initially. Well, it it... It's now some. It's now absolutely essential. We've got to be. Um, it, we've got to be on YouTube. We've got to be on every platform there is because that's where, as, you, as your son told you, that's where people are, um, and it is making a difference. I saw some big numbers for you actually. Yeah, I was surprised. I think people are are responding to that. I mean, I you know this is not anecdotal. I, I mean, it's only anecdotal, I should say. But when I go through airports, or, or sometimes walk down the street. Granted, I live in Washington D.C. or so it's it's not, you know, the middle of America. Young people will come up and say they love the news hour. So, yes, mm-hmm. you're right. They they may not be watching it over the air on broadcast, but they're getting it somewhere. And that tells me that um, this effort to, to be on every platform, we're pushing stories out uh, across the spectrum because we want to be where people are and you know it's it's the way we all not just survive but it's we have we have that responsibility 
is there a room for a PBS like a, a in the greater media landscape with all the noise and and how much it costs? And obviously, you too have been sucked up into politics for a long time now. The House Appropriations Education Subcommittee introduced a decision to zero up funding for the right. Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I've interviewed your bosses about this in the current budget to cut it all together by 2026. For people who don't know, explain how the Corporation for Public Broadcasting works and what kind of cut could impact something like PBS. Well, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting was created decades ago to sustain public broadcasting in in right. America. Um, it is completely separate editorially from anything mm-hmm. that we do. I mean, the News Hour, and I can't speak about Frontline because every every program has a different funding model. But for us, it's it's individual donors, the people who send in, you know, uh, write a check mm-hmm. and they get a tote they get a tote bag, <laughs> or yeah. a cap, or a coffee mug. Um, right. They are absolutely critical to what we do. We we thank each one of our viewers, followers, uh, online and and on the air. And in addition, there are foundations, um, and and there are some wealthier individuals who who are writing bigger checks. Uh, from time to time, which we appreciate. But mainly, it is, it's literally viewers like you who make a difference. Yes, you sound very good in the ad. But what impact would it have if this passes? It's, it's always touch and go with this funding uh, over the years. But, um, you know, eliminating funding for public media has been a, a long time Republican calling card. It's been something that's been discussed, but it hasn't happened. And I think the reason is, is that public media is in every corner of America. There are 350 some odd uh, public TV stations, I don't know how many radio stations, they are embedded in the community. They are more a part of a community, I would argue, than just about any other form of media. It's more local, it's more personal, and therefore it's harder, I think, to uproot this and to say we don't need this. So much of public broadcasting, I'm sure you know this, started out as educational broadcasting. Yep. So there, it's intertwined in ways with the public school system, with with colleges and universities, uh, the licenses often are partly, you know, uh, college and university license, and so it's it's a it's a complex. It's harder. It's complex. So, yeah. So calls for like the Heritage Foundation to uh, to privatize CPB, which would have a big impact on shows like the News Hour. Um, you think ultimately don't go far? I don't see them going far right now. I don't because again because we have such popular support, thankfully, that we've worked hard for across this country. People who, uh, again, whether it's their local community, they love their local PBS station or their local uh, public radio station. They know that that the call letters, they can call it out. Um, or, or because they love a particular program. You mentioned Frontline, the NewsHour, the historic programs, Ken Burns, Henry yeah. Louis Gates and his Finding Your Roots. I mean, these are programs that are now must-watching in some households. Two last very quick questions. One is from an outsider. We call someone uh, and ask them to ask you a question. Um, this week, um, I asked John Meacham uh, to ask a question of you. Judy, you came to Washington more than 50 years ago uh, with President-elect Carter. I'm wondering, when you think about Carter's Washington and now Biden's Washington. What's changed the most and why? Do you think there are forces that have been able to corrupt and coarsen our politics 
beyond redemption? Or do you think there is the possibility of creating a climate in which we can exchange ideas and proposals as opposed to insults? Such a wonderful guy, um, John mm-hmm. Meacham, somebody I look up to with, with awe in his work. Um, how has Washington changed? The main way it's changed, John, I would say, is in the lack of respect that each side has for the other. Um, the fact that people don't know each other in the two political parties. When I first came to Washington, my husband and I have talked about this a lot when we first That's started Al dating. Hunt. Al Hunt, the- yes. Yeah. Uh, we would go to a dinner and there would be Republicans and Democrats and they would have a lively um, discussion about taxes or about, I don't know, name the issue, foreign policy. Um, And then at the end of the evening, they would be laughing and telling stories and talking about their families. Um, And granted, that was a time when members of Congress spent more time in D.C. Today, they rush back to their districts or their states in order to do constituent work. I respect that. But there's also something to be said for getting to know the institution of Congress. And so what we have today is a, is a city where people come, but dis, in many ways disrespecting the institutions of government and the city and, and running against Washington and therefore not being, how do you get something done in the city when you don't even talk to the other side when you don't know them um, and then when you don't when you don't respect them I've heard members of Congress quietly say to me uh, people or former members say um, how can you possibly work out a solution to a problem when you when you don't know the other person you don't know you can trust them and so that yep. trust is eroded the respect is eroded Everything is played out in social media. Everything That's gets exacerbated on the media. The media is ready to pounce. If one comment is made, one thing goes wrong, people jump on it. And yes, that's the instinct of, of, of journalists in a way, but, but there are ways around that. And you asked, John, do I see that as permanent? Do I think it's going to change? I would love to believe that, that we can somehow, if not go back to where we were, that we could at least find ways by some reforms in the political system. And there's a lot of talk about this, about changing the primary process, getting less partisan folks to run for Congress. Uh, but to do that is really chall- is tough. The political parties wield enormous power. On the one hand, people say they're, they're hollowed out. On the other hand, they, they seek retribution. If members of the party don't vote the party line, if they show any sign of cooperating with the other side, they can be punished for it. They can lose a committee assignment, Mm -hmm. lose a chairmanship, not only lose money in their next race, they may be primaried by another candidate in their next race, who is even farther, in the case of the Democrats, to the left, in the case of the Republicans, to the right. So there's no reward in Washington for working with the other side. The reward is for sticking with your guys which isn't a solution, which isn't a recipe for solving our biggest problems as a country. So I, I want to believe we can find our way through this. And I'm part of me is, is the eternal optimist. I have to believe we're going to work our way through it. Uh, but I'm not smart enough as I sit here today to tell you how. 
Well, excellent answer, John. Thank you for the question. So my last question is, one of the things you referenced, we, you had an interview at the Lincoln House uh, here in Washington, and you talked about the a more perfect union. You know, of course, is the famous line there. Right now, we might settle for a less angry one, um, but what is a more perfect union to you after doing this travel? Wow, that's such a good question. Um, I think for me, it's it's a country, it's a people who are more open-minded about hearing other points of view. The thing about American, and I wish I'd studied more American history because the older I get, the more I realize how little I know about American history. But the thing that strikes me over and over again is how Americans are constantly trying to be better. There's always somebody trying to find a solution to overcome, to root out the bad parts of who we are and what we've done. We're always trying to be better. And so however we do that, you know, being honest, looking at ourselves in the mirror and facing who we are and what we are and saying, we're going to, you know, we need to tackle this. We need to talk about it openly. And then we need to figure out ways to address it. Um, but but listening to other the other side right now I'm I'm running into too many people who don't want to hear what other people mm-hmm. have to, or they're covering yeah, their I ears. I would have been interested to have that panels together. I would have been interested to, for you to put them together. Yeah, those two yeah. panels. And 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 this year, you know, I hope we'll have the opportunity to do that. But I I want to believe that Americans will not just uh, you know will just not make up their minds and and go from there, but we'll be open. To, yeah. to other points that of view. That was the great promise of America, yeah. wasn't it? That was the great promise of yeah. America. Anyway, I recommend that everybody uh, watch uh, watch this. It was really good. It was long. It's long. Like, people aren't used to I watching know. things that are substantive. I and I was like, oh, look, something substantive. But go check out America at the Crossroads, which I would have called Everybody Needs to Take uh, Psychedelics. But, um, <laughs> and then and then hug, hug it out. Um, but Judy Woodruff, you're a national treasure yourself. Um, thank you. And uh, I appreciate the interview. Kara, thank you so much. Thank you. On with Kara Swisher is produced by Naeem Araza, Kristen Castro-Rossell, Kateri Yoakum, Megan Cunane, and Megan Burney. Special thanks to Mary Mathis, Kate Gallagher, and Andrea Lopez-Cruzado. Our engineers are Fernando Aruda and Rick Kwan, and our theme music is by Trackademics. If you're already following the show, you get another PBS tote bag to go in all your other PBS tote bags. If not, you can just watch it on YouTube like Louis Swisher. Go wherever you listen to podcasts, search for On with Kara Swisher and hit follow. Thanks for listening to On with Kara Swisher from New York Magazine, the Vox Media Podcast Network, and us. You can subscribe to the magazine at nymag.com slash pod. We'll be back on Thursday with more.